on our earth, before writing was invented, before the printing press was invented, poetry flourished. That's why we know that poetry is like bread. It should be shared by all, by scholars and by peasants, by all our vast, incredible, extraordinary family of humanity. That was Pablo Neruda. I'm Bob Holman, and this is the Poetry is Bread podcast, where poetry challenges us. Go ahead, guys. And with imagination and courage, changes the world. Okay. So on this episode, we welcome two poets from the... What generation are you guys? I don't know. I'm Generation Fox Kids. Fox Kids. Fox I don't kids. actually want to align myself Sands with the Fox industry. There. With the Fox, Fox Kids, bread. I didn't grow up. Jose <laughs> Olivares over here. In the okay. building, what's going on? All right, here we are. Um, I just used to watch like Batman. On Fox Kids. You don't, you don't okay. have to defend yourself well, to me. Yeah, I heard it <laughs> in my mouth. And then I was like, what does that make me? The howdy doody generation? All right. These two, along with Aziza Barnes, were the perpetrators of the Poetry Gods, a poetry podcast from the... What generation would you say that the poets were on your uh, Poetry Gods? I don't know, but we were we were like the first generation poetry podcast, I would say. Oh, there Most it is. Definitely. First generation. Well, the new spoken word, first generation podcast. But we had a varied range. We had some baby boomers. We certainly had a lot of millennials. We had Patricia Smith. We had Araceli Skirmai. It was post-slam, would you say? the? No, there were some. There was no, Patricia there was there. People. Willie Perdomo was in there. So it was slam, too. But it's a movement in search of a name that could care less about names, but is totally devoted to the word, to poetry, exploding from the page into the public commons with the uncommon, the sparkly new, the true spew. So I'm thinking just to call us the uneasy listening poet. Hey. <laughs> All I right, here we go. Jose Olivares, son of Mexican immigrant parents, graduate of Harvard, is a poet of such ferocity that it seems the words can't be contained on the page. So it's a good thing he's a consummate performer to liberate them, to beat your eardrums. A Chicago dude, he worked for Young Chicago Authors, which produces the Louder Than a Bomb youth poetry for years. Now he's in New York. Where where are you living these days? I'm living in Jersey City, so I'm actually outside New okay. York. Okay, Jersey City it is. I always thought Jersey City was part of New York, it counts. but the, you know, whatever. It's fine. Okay, so um, he's uh, he's worked for Urban Word here, and his book Citizen Illegal from our friends at Haymarket Books is a treasure, and was nominated for the Penn Jean Stein Book Award. He's co-editor with Willie Perdomo, the aforementioned and Felicia Chavez of the Haymarket Anthology, The Breakbeat Poets, Volume 4, Latinext. Here's Mexican heaven. Jesus has a tattoo of La Virgen de Guadalupe covering his back. Turns out, he's your cousin. Jesus from the block. Turns out, it's Jesus. Turns out, he gets reincarnated every day, and no one on earth. Cares that much. Here, let's have a poem from you, if that's okay, Jose. Una poem, por favor. Sounds good, sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. This poem is called Ode to Tortillas. There's two ways to be a Mexican writer that we've discovered so far. 
You can be the Mexican writer who writes about tortillas, or you can be the Mexican writer who writes about croissants instead of the tortillas on their plate. Can you be a Mexican writer if you're allergic to corn? There's two ways to be a Mexican writer that are true and tested. You can write about migration or you can write about migration. Can you be a Mexican writer if you never migrated, if your family never migrated? There's two ways to be a Mexican writer. You can translate from Spanish or you can translate to Spanish or you can refuse to translate altogether. There's only one wound in the Mexican writer's imagination, and it's the wound of the chancla. It's the wound of Bidia being sold out at the taco truck. It's the wound of too many dolores and not enough dollars. It can be argued that these are all chanclazos. Even death is a chanclazo. There's only one miracle gifted to Mexicans, and it's the miracle of never running out of cheap beer. It's the miracle of never running out of bad jokes. There's infinite ways to eat a tortilla, made in the ancient ways by hand and warmed in a comal, made with corn or with Taco Bell plastic. What about flour tortillas? Flour tortillas count if you ask San Antonio. My people, I am poly with the tortillas. You can eat tortillas with your hands or roll them up and dip them in caldo like my mom does. You can eat them with a fork and knife like my bougie cousins do. What bougie cousins? I made them up for the purpose of this poem. You can eat tortillas and tacos or warmed up by microwave and drizzled with butter. Tortillas con arroz, tortillas con frijoles. Tortillas flipped by hand or tortillas flipped with a spatula. Tortillas with eggs for breakfast. Tortillas fried and sprinkled with sugar for dessert. Hard shell tortillas. Gluten-free tortillas for our mixed family. We are still discovering new ways to fold a tortilla, to cut a tortilla up, to transform a tortilla into new worlds, to feed each other with tortillas. My people, if I have children, I will teach them about tortillas, but I'm sure they'll want McDonald's. Jose, unfair, you know, like I'm supposed to now go straight into introducing John Sands, you know, your bud, my pal. And, I think we uh, need a few minutes. Now, <laughs> you know, this I podcast, was... I'm just going to tell everybody, is about this idea you guys have about talking about the greatest poem in the world. And the problem is, we just heard it. <laughs> you know, you see, you're jumping the gun on me here. Not, Not at all. allowed. <laughs> oh, no, that's an epic signature poem right there. Come on. I appreciate it. I really like that poem, so I'm, I'm glad you dig it, too. Well, how long ago did you write it? I wrote that probably last year. I wrote it in 2021, February 2021. Wow, so that is, is a COVID poem. It's man. a COVID poem. Plenty of time. All at one point, it really sounded like you were getting to the Sermon on the Mount there. You know, the part where the miracle of never-ending <laughs> cheap beer, I guess, was around there. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the poems that kind of came in a rush for me. You know, like there wasn't, once I, I had the angle, I was like, oh, I, I know where to go with this. And it just it came rushing out. So it was one of those fast poems. Um, wow. Great. Yeah. 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 John, what do you say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> John, I love that poem. <laughs> John Sands has two books out. The New Clean. Hey. From our friends at Right Bloody Publishing. 
the new clean, which is exactly that. And if you don't believe me, you should take a gander at him here in the studio because the man is absolutely scrubbed. It's true. Scrubbish. I bathed prior, <laughs> prior to arrival. And the second book, It's Not Magic, which was selected by Richard Blanco, hey. Blanco, pardon, for Beacon Press, which belies its title because it is magic. When mm. uh, our man John Conjures poems out of the air didn't know the air had a melody. A curator for Super Duper Fresh, the poetry series at Ode to Babel. Yep. Yep. A founding curator of poets in unexpected places. And he's uh, represented in New York City many times at the National Poetry Slam, something I want to talk about. Starred in the Rataplax web series Verse, an MFA from, co- from Brooklyn College. And he lives in Brooklyn, but his roots are in Cincinnati. This is true. As are mine, too, in a way. And Abiodun Oyewole of The Last Poets. And Kenneth Koch, my professor at Columbia. Oh, let's hear it for the poets from Cincinnati. Unite. And I think that uh, only John is a big Bengals fan. What? Okay. Of religion, he says, the present is our religion. Hello, John Sands. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Happy to be here. You I'm reading a poem now. That's, that's the, right, that's the let's drill. Do this. Let's have it. In the beginning, God created airheads and made them 25 cents a piece from the Sycamore Junior High School concession stand. In the beginning, God made me buy 20 and sell them for a dollar a piece on the bus ride home. In the beginning, God made oversized corduroys, skater bangs, and that game where all the boys go into the restroom, turn out the lights, and kick each other in the stomach, rolling around on the miniature tile floor in the dark until, in the beginning, God made Doug Stone bite someone to signal the end of the game. In the beginning, God made family, so someone would always be available to criticize your clothing choices. In the beginning, God made Speedos, wrestling mats, and perfectly concave love handles that echoed farting noises against the mat like the sound of a rusted 1989 Toyota Camry stalling out at an intersection. God made those two little marbles in your head, rolling across the muggy, damp, ringworm-filled room to see who was laughing. God invented laughing at you. God said, let there be death, and the trouble started. God made a kid take another kid's toy, and the trouble started. God made a kid so privately scared of getting his toy stolen that he had to overcompensate, and the trouble started. In the beginning, God made oil, but thought, oh no, you're using it wrong. In the beginning, God made power and said, you have to use it, to get it, so there it always is. In the beginning, God made a hand letting go. God made the airheads and the dentist, the suburbs and the subatomic weapons. In the beginning, God made safety and an expiration date. God made all the neurons in your mother's brilliant head and then started snuffing them out one by one like matches. All right, John Sands. Poem called Origins. Origins. It's a Genesis. 
you know, both of you guys had sort of list poems. That was just a fantastic poem, John. You know, it, 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 you know, it leads from the heart and the truth and the Sycamore High School I know from, uh, or junior high, I know from, uh, from the Cincinnati suburbs there, you know, and then takes it all the way out to uh, gathering the truth from uh, how God invents the subatomic particles and the <laughs> and the and the semi sub machine guns. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, agree. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad you agree with your own poem. That's a super thing. You guys came up with this idea of the best poem ever as a poetry slam. I would vote for these two poems as being the best ever. But uh, how did you come up with that? And uh, how it to me, it just sounds like a way to make fun of the poetry slam, which was making fun of the poetry reading. And we began to just uh, move into the great future. How did we come up with this? I can't remember whose idea it was. I just know that once it was in the air, we both agreed that it was a great idea. I think we both have, we both lean into hyperbole. We both like the idea of being hyperbolic, especially with poetry, which so often can have this kind of sense of humility or like, you know, this air of quietness. And and I don't know about you, John, but I really enjoy kind of disrupting that and being like, let's be loud and proclaim something uh, the greatest of all time. Also, I, you know, we're both, re- you know, you mentioned John is a Bengals fan. Like, I think we're both really into sports. And of course, in sports, there's all of these arguments about like, who's the who's the greatest of all time in basketball or in any sport. I also feel like we're both teachers and maybe that matters and maybe it doesn't. It matters in so much as when I'm teaching a class, I feel like it's the one time in my life, even though I do this informally with my friends, certainly, or like via text. but in a classroom, you can bring in a poem and you say, okay, this is 30 minutes that we have allotted to talk about all the things that this poem may or may not mean to you. And we can really geek out about what it is, both from a craft perspective, but also, you know, how it functions through our particular lens, like the lens of our lives and what that means. And so I think this idea of an undisputed, and so the 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 idea of the podcast is that it's called the the undisputed greatest poem of all time. <laughs> yes. Um, and I wouldn't, uh, I don't know if we're in search of it. I think just when I feel excited about a poem in my mind, it is the undisputed greatest poem of all time. Um, and so we each, you know, are going to bring in the undisputed greatest poem of all time and then talk about why. Then talk about why we'll invite a guest to also bring in the undisputed greatest poem of all time. So here we are. So let's do it. What yeah. could I hear from uh, whichever one of you guys wants to go first? The uh, undisputed greatest poem of all time. I got you. The undisputed greatest poem of all time is a poem called Like You by Roque Dalton. Uh, that's the English translation by Jack Hirschman. The original poem is written in Spanish. It's called Como Tu. I'll read it in Spanish first, and then I'll read it in English. Como Tu. Yo como tu. Amo el amor, la vida, el dulce encanto de las cosas, el paisaje celeste de los días de enero. También mi sangre bulle y río por los ojos que han conocido el brote de las lágrimas. Creo que el mundo es bello, que la poesía es como el pan de todos, 
y que mis venas no terminan en mí, sino en la sangre unánime de los que luchan por la vida, el amor, las cosas, el paisaje y el pan, la poesía de todos. And then this is the poem in English as translated by Jack Hirschman. Like you, I love love, life, the sweet smell of things, the sky blue landscape of January days, and my blood boils up and I laugh through eyes that have known the buds of tears. I believe the world is beautiful and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone and that my veins don't end in me but in the unanimous blood of those who struggle for life, love, little things, landscape, and bread, the poetry of everyone. Damn. Super, super that poem. Is so good. Gosh. Yeah. Roque Dalton, it's uh, is Salvadoran. Salvadoran right. poet, yes. And uh, died very young. You know, I, I love his book, uh, the earth is a satellite of the moon, you know, it's uh, just uh, that. But of course, one of the reasons why that is the world's greatest poem is because it's got the name of our podcast in it, you know, and, and it's going to send me scurrying. Of course, if any of our listeners wants to scurry right now, please do. Uh, let's find out who bit who. Did Neruda by Dalton? Did uh, did Roque Dalton bite him, or did they just do the simultaneous? Because we all know that poetry is like bread. Yeah, you know, so it could simultaneously arise. What do you love about this poem? I I love a few things. You know, one I discovered it in the anthology by Martin Espada, which I think is also called Poetry Like Bread. Yeah, yeah. Um, that came out with Curbstone Press, and when I read it, it was one of those poems that I I. It just, it felt like thunder coming, you know, over my head or something. Like, it just immediately shook me. I loved how strong and fierce the voice was. I loved the images. I loved that it it put to words something that I, that I try to do in my poems, which is to write poems that can work on many different levels, right? That, you know, mm -hmm. has the craft that you want to look for, but also, like, you can give it to anyone and they'll have a reaction, a feeling, right? It felt, it moved, it moved me in my spirit. So that's the first thing that came back to it. And it kind of feels like, it feels anthemic to me. It's a poem that's that right. I can repeat that I, you know, I want to like read at marches, but also at concerts and also like before eating this idea mm. that like what we're doing is, is like bread. I, I really, immediately it felt like it put to words something that I had been feeling in my writing uh and and in the world and it made me I, I just immediately gravitated to it that line about my veins what what is it it's like and my, my veins don't end in me but in the unanimous blood of those who struggle for life yeah yeah wow that's amazing yeah. unanimous blood I, I mean i don't you, you know like unanimous this is Jack Hirschman, you know, who was an old line commie. He just died, you know, this year. Um, Poet laureate of, of San Francisco at one point and, a, you know, truly a, a wonderful translator, human being, activist. We're total activists, as, you know, as was Dalton, you know. Yeah. Um, 
But what do you think about that unanimous blood? I mean, it's a, it's a stretch, isn't it? Um, what's the word in Espanol? Unanime. Unanime. Is it, is it, would that be a translation you would you would do there? Was yeah, it? you know, I, I like this Hirschman translation. It feels very faithful. And I also love that it keeps the music of the mm. of the original in Spanish. Um for me, I think part of that what I do love about the poem is that it's so, you know, commie or, or socialist yeah, or yeah. anti-capitalist. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not afraid to walk the line between being, you know, political propaganda and art. It's like willing to say something. My blood boils up and I laugh through eyes that have known the buds of tears. You know, I mean, you are. That's exactly what it is. It's walking the line of uh, of propaganda there with, with those big nouns coming in. Yeah, and then it goes from that kind of power to, like, the softness of, you know, there's so much love in the poem. There's so much, you know, there's 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 the struggle, but there's also, like, Bread. It, it it makes sense to me in the way that I think about like often we think about change as being about, you know, maybe big picture things. But for me, it's like wanting all of my friends and family to be able to have medicine when they need it. You know what I mean? Like mm. it's it's actually tangible and small everyday things, wanting people to be able to eat when they're hungry, wanting people to be able to be housed like it's not it it's it's tangible in the way that the poem makes it makes it feel. Also, propaganda is such a large word, like poetry, in that it holds so much, you know? And so there's a part of me that's resisting naming a poem that charges that level of, I want to say, empathy or what it is to look and think, no, 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 my, my blood joins the blood of the people who are struggling or my blood joins the people as a as an emotional feeling that one wants to document. So I think in that moment, I picture the poet writing it and saying, I have this thing that is part of my experience of being alive. I feel unified with these people, or I feel charged to be a part of, I don't know like what is identified as a struggle, but also represents all these small things that you're saying. And that's a real emotion that exists inside the body. And so there's a part of me that that reads that poem both as charge for the reader. But I think that charge for the reader feels like it starts in a really authentic place for the poet. Who's like, I just feel this thing and I need to find a way to articulate that. And then it also becomes a charge for both the, the speaker, but also the reader. That's it. Poem isn't... Uh isn't written until somebody reads it like that. Well, because like you propaganda know? for a morning cereal, nobody's like, man, I just really fucking love tricks cereal <laughs> and I need to communicate it. They're thinking immediately, how do I sell this, right? Whereas I feel like one of the things that separate poetry from propaganda is the feeling of, I absolutely feel this and must articulate it. And then we as poets begin to say, how do I share this feeling that I had with the world? How does this thing become separate from me? And how do I govern the way in which it meets the world? But it feels like it starts from a pure place. And again, how do you know? How can you judge authenticity? You just kind of feel it, you know? And it feels authentic to me. Yeah, that poem also kind of feels like a a secret code in my life. Like I'll, I'll, 
mention that poem to someone and their their eyes will light up and it immediately will recognize like a kind of kinship. Like one of my closest friends, Javier Zamora, who's also a poet, has that poem tattooed on his ribs. Oh uh, and it was because that was like the first poem that when he read it, and he's also a Salvadoran writer, right? But when he read it, it immediately said something to him that, you know, nothing in the world had ever said before. It immediately put language to something that previously had been unspeakable. Uh, and so that that poem is is kind of like a secret handshake. Like when I when I meet someone and they tell me that that's their favorite poem or they know that poem, they love that poem, immediately it's like we've closed the door and now we're in a in a Roque Dalton, <laughs> you know, appreciation society together. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I just I really love it. It's one that I never get tired of reading. Glorious. And, you know, I got to tell you that hearing you guys talk is sort of like watching this poem unfurl, you know, because you're talking about the same things that he's talking about, what poetry can do, you know, how it is different from propaganda. Even when you use words like boils and struggle and other you know, blood and other words that, 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 that sort of, you know, ignite propaganda, you know, but here, you know, and as he closes, uh, struggle for life, love, little things, just like you're saying, Jose, landscape and bread, the poetry of everyone. Well, I guess we've decided that this is the world's greatest. And if Samora has it, has it uh, tattooed on him, then, uh, that's what you got to do is you got to tattoo the poem on you to prove that it's the uh every episode yeah ah! I, I would get that poem tattooed right now i think i have a gwendolyn brooks line tattooed on me and a lucille clifton line don't leave us hanging what are the lines uh on my arm i have a change changer i continue to continue which is from a lucille clifton poem uh and then on my chest, I have Nevertheless Live, which comes from one of Gwendolyn Brooks's poems. Wow. Um, two great poets, two great lines. Yeah. You know? Well, I guess it must be time to hear the undisputed greatest poem of all time. If we must. I'm we sorry. Must. This is what we must do. Jeff. I had a hard time choosing one for this uh, episode, so I just want to show my work a little bit because I didn't bring any. Audre Lorde's A Litany for Survival is the undisputed greatest poem of all time. I'm not reading it. It is the undisputed greatest poem of all time. Ada Salis Girmais, Abuelo Mi Muerto, undisputed <laughs> greatest poem of all time. Um, Nazim Hikmet, On Living. Come on. That actually mm. might be seriously the greatest poem of all time. <laughs> um, I am going to read a poem. but I. So I'm doing it from memory, so I want to... Any uh, irregularities you see with the actual print of the poem, attribute that to my faulty memory. However, I'm reading a poem called Crazy Bunch Barbecue by ah. Willie Perdomo. Definitely one of the most important poems in my evolution as a writer. Mm. Um, and I am reading the version that came out in Smoking Lovely, published by Rataplax in 2000-something, early 2000s. However, there is an earlier version on the internet that you can find that is like an early rendition of it. So you'll be able to see it if you were to get the Rattleplax book, you'd see the edits. But Willie also just put out Smoking Lovely again, 
through Haymarket, I want to say last year or the year before, where there are even more edits. So mine is with the Radiplax edition. That's the one I have memorized. But know that Willie has since updated this poem in some ways. So you should definitely get the book. Okay. Crazy Bunch Barbecue at Jefferson Park by Willie Perdomo. This is definitely for the brothers who ain't here, who would have said, I had to write a poem about this get together, like a list of names on a memorial that celebrated our own old timers day. For those of us who age in hood years, where one night can equal the rest of our lives and surviving the trade-off was worth writing on the wall and telling the world that we were here forever. The barbecue started with a snap session. Jerry had the best snap of the day when he said that my family was so poor. And the fella said, how poor? And he said, so poor that on Thanksgiving, they had to buy turkey-flavored now and laters. The laughter needed no help when we exposed the stretch marks of our growing pains. Phil had barbecue on the, drill, on the grill. He slapped my hand when I tried to brush extra sauce on a chicken leg. Yo, go find something to do. Go write a poem. Go do something. Look at that little boy on the base. Oh, I'm the chef. You the poet. Look at that little boy on the baseball diamond. Look at him run circles around second base. Today is his birthday. Write about how the wind is trying to take his red balloon. It used to take a few shots of something strong before we could cry and say, I love you. We have always known how to curse and bless the dead. Now we let the silence say it. And like the little boy's sneakers disappearing in a cloud of dirt, we walk home in the sun, grown up and full. This is definitely for the brothers who ain't here, who would have said I had to write a poem about this get together, like a list of names on a memorial that celebrated our own old timers day. For those of us who age in hood years, where one night can equal the rest of our lives, and surviving the trade-off was worth writing on the wall and telling the world that we were here forever. Oh, Ooh. Willie. I'm positive I and mixed John. up a couple John, a few words there, a, so really I, check out the phone. I'm really glad that we got this on video. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> because the way your face was searching for the words while your mouth was just continuing with... Willie's extraordinary poem. That was uh, that was worth the price of admission, right there. That know? poem is so good. I mean, to me, one thing that that poem taught me, and it literally in my writing life was like a before I read that poem and the book, right, and after, is that you can literally just tell the story of you and your friends getting together for one meal that was particularly meaningful. And so on the surface, that poem is just a recollection of what happens at a barbecue with some old friends. And honestly, if the poem was just that, it would be magnificent. Mm. Like if that poem started on the barbecue, started with a snap session and ended on grown up in full, you'd be like, fantastic poem. It's great storytelling. But the decision to have these two stanzas that both start and end the poem, and they're the exact same stanzas yeah. with this is definitely for the brothers who ain't here. To me is this moment where you say, okay, I'm going to tell the story, but now there's an additional piece of context that you need. And not just do you need to know that there are people who we've lost, right? That there are people who can't be here 
um, I read that I read death as a specter in this poem, but there are other reasons why somebody might not be able to be there, right? Uh, and not just that this happens in spite of the loss that we have felt or the grief that we've grieved, uh, but that the good times that we have in this celebration of what is, I think, inarguably a really good day, right. that it's dedicated to the loss that we've experienced. And to see those two things just so seamlessly joined together feels like it's um, a really accurate capturing of what it is yeah. to mm -hmm. celebrate right. in life. You know, and it's just, it gives this kind of formal sense to it, which a poem can, which a poem does if it's written down and is published in a book there's this formality there's there's art about it that's a little different from the conversation you have when you're trying to put the barbecue sauce on on the chicken thigh you know it's but even the conversation about the barbecue sauce is like go find something to do i'm the chef yeah you're the poet yeah. it's like i know what my role is in this friend group and i know you and not only are you the poet like go do the thing that poets do. And I know what poets do. It's like, go write about how the wind is trying to take that kid's exactly. red balloon. It's like go the most poetic line. Yeah, look at that guy <laughs> yeah. running around second base out there. You know, yeah, yes, what it is, is it's it's for those who are not here. And in fact, he's that's who he's talking to here. You know, I mean, it's not just an exercise. And he's, he's, he's laying out these truths to them and everything as deep as he can go is everything that binds them together. It's a, it's the communitas, you know, it's, a, it's exactly what the title is, you know, um, the gang hanging out, yeah. stretch marks of our growing pains. Who's he talking? I mean, I, I love that line. That's right after the the snap session, uh, with the great jerk, with the great joke. Your fam, how poor is how poor how poor are you? So poor you have your family had to buy turkey flavored now and later for Thanksgiving for yeah, Thanksgiving, yeah, which yeah. is hilarious and cruel, and yet they have that type of bond that you know that it doesn't result in a fight. It results in people just cracking up together. Um, for me, those those two moments of levity that the snap session and then the session where like you see the poet trying to rub barbecue sauce on the chicken and you know the the barbecue, the grill master's like, nah, that you know, mm. that's not you. You're the poet. And then proceeds to like basically write the poem for the poet. Exactly. You there know it is. Is it's <laughs> just it's so it's so brilliant. And you know, you can immediately for me, what it does, it, it reminds me that, you know, that poetry is always happening, right? And if you just have to, like, pay attention and listen and be present, and then when, you know, you're hanging out with anybody, you you know, those moments can happen if you're, if you're paying attention, if you're watching, if you're listening. And it's not, it, you know, it doesn't matter that the boy is there. Like, it could be anything in that moment. It happened to be a boy yeah. chasing a balloon on his birthday, right? But it could have been anything in that moment. I love that. I, I It's making me remember that I read this poem probably right around the time when I first did National Poetry Month, which was for a long time I would write 30 poems in 30 days with a lot of people on the internet. And that was my first experience um, writing enough to notice the moments that you're talking about. Whereas before, I think my writing process had been about waiting until an undeniable thing hit me and I couldn't turn away from it and I like had to sit down and get it out. 
And that was my first time where it was like day one, I would do that poem. And then day two, I would do like a kind of echo of that poem. <laughs> and then by day three of 30, you'd sit down and be like, oh, fuck, I have nothing to write about. And I need to sit down and I need to pay attention. Right. And so you yeah. go outside and see a little boy running around second base and you'd be like, is that it? Right. And so all your poems would start with, is that it? And they would end obviously in places where you found it. Right. And so it's almost like acknowledging that there's this well of humanity and celebration and grief and all of the largest emotional parts that are dulled by the everyday nature of life. And they're there if you can sit down and be still enough to find them, right? And kind of right. romance them out of your poem. It's, yeah, it's the idea that there is a poem that gives it that underlife, you know, that gives it that... Uh, you know, that lets the subconscious in, that lets it, everything is a symbol, you know, when you, when you, when you get onto it, like Willie does there. And like you read, so not read, see, that's a problem. You know, when you, you were just, you were just flowing it. What's the word here? Because it's not, it was certainly not reciting, you know, reciting to me is that, 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 you know, it's, it's, you know, it's verbally word for word. You're telling the poem, like you tell a story. Yeah. But telling isn't it either. We need a new, we need a new old, you know, that was a word that was so, so useful in the, or in the days when there was only orality, you know, it's what people did was they, they memorized and they memorized the way you memorize this, which is that they didn't do it word for word. They knew it so well, they could let it just happen to them. You know, I think that that's part of my frustration with the, like, term spoken word <laughs> or like slam poet or anything like that because it's like what makes that that doesn't make it a genre like if somebody knows a poem well enough to be present when they read it that doesn't create a genre that's just another life that a poem can have and so somebody will watch hypothetically Jose give a reading and say, wow, I really loved that reading. And Jose was really present and I was really moved. <laughs> it must have been spoken word, right? But it's mm. not spoken word. It's like you're reading from a book that you've written. Speaking of Willie, like one of my favorite, I don't know, I, maybe somebody can track this down. It used to be on Willie's website, but there was like a podcast interview, like the earliest podcast I've ever remembered. And or maybe he's just like on the radio. And I just remember somebody being like, Willie, like as a spoken word artist, and they just could not proceed with the interview because Willie kept being like I don't know what you mean by that I don't know what I don't know what a spoken word artist is I don't know what that means what do you mean and they kept being like ah. well you know being a spoken word poet is uh you know I never understood why poetry for 40,000 years was spoken only and for the last 2,500 years it was written down now it's starting to go digital it's into third consciousness so how come those newcomers are want to claim the word poet? And you know, why don't they call them text poets or book mm. poets or something like that? If you have to, which you don't have to. Poems should be generous and inclusive like that. Yeah. I mean, for me, the thing that I love about poetry is that it's a participatory art. Like what you're talking about with John, like John was giving his interpretation of Willie's poem, you know what I mean? And not just because maybe the words are different in John's reading than the most updated version of Willie's poem as written, but because 
John is feeling that poem in this moment with this with us in this room and it's giving it new life, you know? Uh, so I always think about like, for me, my favorite poems don't, don't end when they're written and published, right? Before we got on, we were talking about if a poem is read, does that count as publication? <laughs> you know, like who cares? For me, the real, the poem is made, is completed when someone else reads it. There it is. You know? And that can be in an, in an experience where they're reading from a book or a website, or that can be out loud. Um, but they must complete it by participating in the act. I love that. Oh, man, after all the greatest <laughs> poems in the universe here, of course, most of which have to have yet to be written, I'm reminded of Ted Berrigan's poem, People of the future, remember, I wrote these poems, not you. So let's just ask to have a favorite poem here by our two distinguished guests. John, why don't you go first? Pick us, uh, pick us one of yours. I shall. And let me just say, before I read this, for you two, but for anyone listening at home, there's going to come a moment in this poem where you think he's embellishing. And I am here to assure you that everything that I'm about to say happened literally exactly as I am about to say it. That's the best trigger warning I have ever heard. Okay. It's called Ars Poetica, which is a poem about poetry. It is Christmas, and we are childless walking arm in arm through Rockefeller Center, a place I would rather fly over than through. But Maggie's brother and sister-in-law are in New York. So it is a weekend of all the places we are known by, but never go. And we are not quite drunk, but there is a lavender gust of possibility as we twist out of the holiday market, emerald green hats, random cotton balls glued to tents that sell $500 individually made purses, and a patch of tourists part before us as the Rockefeller ice rink emerges in all its fuchsia royalty. And if I told you how much currency was on this one city block, an avalanche of assets, you might wilt or bloom enough to make anyone defensive or delusional. Hundreds of skaters gliding toddlers across the surface of the ice, imprinting their images into iPhones, some holding the hands of their siblings from one shore to the other so hard that if, poof, everyone else disappeared, we would marvel at their spectacle. But now, everyone is disappearing. And from our heightened perch on the crow's nest of the plaza, we finally see security in ice skates, clearing hundreds of holiday enthusiasts off the most famous ice in America. First, a wave of panic, how doom is cousin to confusion. But now, 
two skaters are left, a man and woman, presumably, holding hands in front of 50,000 people. She looks to the left, then right, bathed in billion-dollar Disney Rockefeller lights and does not know what is happening, but then does. They have stopped in the middle. He is reaching into his pocket. And my immediate thought is how many kids could go to college on the money it costs to shut down Rockefeller Center at Christmas. And then if you need the affirmation of 100,000 people for your engagement, it does not bode well for your marriage. And before he hits a knee, as though I have manifested her from thin air, all 150,000 of us realize security left one behind. She is easily on the shallow end of 15 in a white and pink sweatshirt. I am assuming from Nebraska. And she does not know how to skate. And the security guard now refuses to skate into the empty ice populated by all of our eyeballs. He is at the gate, waving his hands like the propeller on a ship, moving further and further from the falling girl as she hits the ice, stands, hits the ice, and stands again, trying to will the gate closer. The man now wanting to take a knee almost taking a knee, or maybe he wants his money back. The girl wants off of the ice, or under the ice, or the opposite of ice, and I am rooting for her. Her emotions so genuine it hurts, so available to us all who can't do the one thing she wants us to do, which is look away while her new roommates in this forever moment want our eyes all to themselves. And I ask you, why would you ever pay so much for beauty when it's free? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no embellishment there. That's it. That's oh, exactly, come on. Straight exactly ahead. It was uh, amazing. It, uh, really? <laughs> I've well, never experienced a moment quite like it. Well, honestly. yeah. You got your moment there. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. The tree doesn't make it in. The tree. What do you mean? Well, isn't there a huge Christmas tree at Rockefeller Plum? Oh, Christmas? yeah. We must Isn't have it? seen it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't remember, Bob. I just remember <laughs> the ice rink. Like, uh, unbelievable. Well, did she say yes? I mean, did it happen? Honestly, I don't, I'm sure she did. Uh, but you probably I, turned away by then. I mean, I once, she left the, once she left the... Uh, I, was imme- I was just... I mean, I don't know. It might say something about me, too. I think some people, some very good-natured people could see it and say, oh, wow. What a magnificent moment. But I'll like, take me, your I just nature. was immediately like, what? You rented? Rockefeller Center ice rink. You made them clear all these families off the ice. 
Jose, then you love the way it went from 50, the audience 50. I said, how does he know there's 50,000? There's not 50,000 people. But the next time it turns around, it's 100,000. It's a lot of people. Fun. <laughs> Felt like a well, lot of people. It's so nice that you gave the details rather than just saying it's a lot of people. It was a lot of now, people. what a poet you are. I, I love that poem, too, because it kind of speaks to Willie's poem. I mean, and your first poem did, too. But it's like, it's it's the telling of the story, right? It's it's. Yeah. I mean, in this moment, it is like a big, big deal, right? Engagements are a big deal, but it's the precision of being like, that's actually not the story. The story is what's happening just outside there. Capitalismo. Just the contrast is yeah. so pronounced. Yeah. Where I was like, this thing that, that is happening to her that is so full of, like, it's terrible. She's going to hate that moment. I know that, right? But it's so genuine. You're like, oh, my God, that is the stuff of life. Like, sometimes you're in front of 150,000 people falling over on the ice, and you can't do anything about it. it and sometimes is. you're like, I want 150,000 people to watch me propose the, be the embodiment of love. And it's like, that's not the embodiment of love, right? When you... Rented the ice, it wasn't the embodiment. I'm not saying that those two people don't love each other, but like, yeah, that to me doesn't scream love. Doesn't bode well for the marriage, as you say. I, I wish them well. I see oh, I hope they're I wish them married. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, it's, I have I'm no, sure there's many stories my about what happened means to that nothing couple. To their relationship. It's just what I felt. Yeah. Jose, come on. You got a poem there? The tell I like the way you said that that poem talked to Willie's poem. As, as did his first poem, John's first poem. But, uh, you know, poems do talk to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying, but, I, I you know, I, I think poems are alive. I think that we have relationships with them. This poem is called Ugly. I'm done with beauty. The rich can have it. Done trying to imitate their laser-printed faces. What do I know of beauty? but my brother's lip only smiles. He started smiling with his whole mouth once he got his teeth fixed. The joke's on him. He's still ugly. Apologies for all the eyes I've wounded with my bald head and unibrow. I know I'm ugly like pigeons on street corners, refusing to die. Maybe peacocks are prettier, but I've never seen one in real life. Out here, we wore the fuck out of our common feathers. Ugly like my brother, ugly like my daddy, ugly like laughing with your whole face and never apologizing. Wow. Well, yes. and there it is. And that's talking, I'm sure that is talking absolutely to, uh, to John's poem. Yeah. You know, um, I think you're right. I do think that like when I write, I, I think about talking to John and talking to some of my mm. other friends. For you, who are some of the people that you think you're talking to when you're writing? My mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot. You know, my mother taught me to read, and I've never got over it. You know, it, it was, it's really a, a, a miracle to have the words come off the page in her voice. You know, as those little blots, those little squiggles turned into meaning, it was always her saying them to me and uh so often i hear her listening to me as i'm writing and uh 
encouraging me. You know. Did you make her laugh a lot? She laughed all the time to me. And to, so did her, her mother, Roxy Pope, down there in Harlan, Kentucky. Um, Roxy used to say, oh, Robert, ah, fiddlesticks. <laughs> she was a fiddlesticks type, you know. And I'd always try to get them, get them going as we were in the porch swing. Or the glider, you know, whichever you chose there. Here's the undisputed. Let's hear it. I love it. It's a poem. <laughs> it's terrible. It's wonderful. It's by Bill Knott. It's called Death. Perfect ending poem. Going to sleep. I cross my hands on my chest. They will place my hands like this. It will look as though I am flying into myself. Mm. That's beautiful. Next time we'll do the undisputed uh, best haiku uh, or short poem or something like that and get it in. I'm with you. Yeah, I like it. Thank you, guys. This has been too much fun. And uh, I know that we're going to take uh, In the Pocket and Spend It Right and release it soon and see how it works its way up the poetry charts. The charts. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm Bob Holman, and thank you for listening to Poetry is Bread. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes or check us out at BoweryPoetry.com. This podcast is co-produced by Ram Devanini and Flavia Rota with Rataplax, artwork by Fabian Carullo. This podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State with funding provided by the U.S. government and implemented by Global Ties U.S. in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs and with additional support from the New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State, and the New York State Legislature. Wow. I can't believe I said that. That's not a poem. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> <laughs>